In the second main section, which is going to stretch now from 2, 4 down to 15, Zephaniah expands the prophecy of judgments from Judah to the nations that are surrounding Judah. Here in Lesson 6, warnings to the Gentile nations now, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Cush, and Assyria. Uh, Zephaniah really isn't known for its literary excellence, uh, but some commentators nevertheless still consider this section to be his literary skills at their very best. One writer refers to this section as the poem of the nations. And here in half chapter 2, the prophet is going to depict the end of pagan cities, and he uses poetic puns on their names. Uh, he uses words to describe their demise that have a poetic correlation to the cities. Uh, for example, probably the most prominent one, uh, obvious perhaps, is verse 4. Gaza shall be deserted, and it reads, Aza Azuva, and it kind of goes on in that similar style. And there are many in Judah who had bought into this pagan notion that that where is God? Well, he's in Jerusalem. And so if I just don't go there, if I can even flee perhaps to Gentile cities, then God's not there. I'll be spared. You think perhaps of, of Jonah. I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to go over to Tarshish. Maybe God's not there. But you can't hide there. We can't hide anywhere. And so now what do we have? We have a judgment on those Gentile cities. And these nations are held without excuse because they've seen the testimony of Israel's God working within Israel, and yet they refuse to repent. And so we have warnings against these Gentile nations, and in most of these warnings, we'll see a pattern. It's going to be a pattern of punishment and then promise. And what God is showing in the judgment on the nations, now particularly turning to those outside of Israel, the a political order outside of his nation. And God is showing in doing this that he is going to bring a radical upheaval now of the common order. The coming kingdom is going to be a full-fledged kingdom of glory that's going to be constituted upon the destruction of the enemies of God. Klein talks about this in God, Heaven, and Harm again in an excellent section on page 23 and also again in page 212. The culture of the nations is going to be removed. The pagan human governments, their opposition to God as depicted in the Tower of Babel, they're going to become obsolete. The nations are going to be purged of impurity, folded into Christ until there's one true nation, one true people of God. The remnant will be brought in. This is going to be a reversal of the scattering of Babel. And the unfolding of this promise is found in Jesus Christ, and that's revealed in the New Testament concept of Christ's church. Who are the true people of God? What is the true nation? Peter tells the remnant of the church of Christ, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, and now you are a people of God. And so we see this destruction then of the nations. The first thing we see is a warning to Philistia, and we find that in verses 4 through 7. We see the punishment aspect first. In verse 4, Gaza shall be deserted, Ashkelon shall become a desolation, Astod's people shall be driven out at noon, Ekron shall be uprooted. So here are four uh, prominent cities of the Philistines. They occupied a strip of land about 15 miles wide, about 30 miles, uh, 50 miles perhaps long, 
along on the Mediterranean coast, long been a side, uh, long been a thorn in the side of the Israelites when the uh, sea peoples invaded the ancient Near East coming off of the Mediterranean uh, at the end of the 13th century. At that time, the Hittite Empire falls back then. The Egyptian Empire is waning. It's set by internal struggles. Uh, Seaports are collapsing, destroyed. And this, uh, this destabilization paves the way, the absence of powerful empires back then, uh, for an area of relative peace in that area, which would be around Israel. And that's why we see the Philistines on the ascendancy early in the history of Israel. They're one of those sea peoples who come over uh, probably from Crete. In Joshua 11, you can find, of course, that the Israelites failed to purge those peoples from Gaza, from Gath, from Ashdod, the Canaanite nations. They remained in the land. Solomon had brought them under a dominion. Uh, they're finally conquered by Uzziah in 760, but they still hold this territory uh, that blocks Judah from the Mediterranean Sea. Well, now we're coming to the end of the nation of Judah. <laughs> of all things. Not the end of those nations, yes, that too, but particularly the end of Judah. And we're learning now that what Israel had failed to do, God's now going to do. He's going to remove these nations. These ungodly cities are going to be deserted, desolated, driven out, uprooted. Zephaniah says, a compilation of of, uh, destruction words that demonstrate to us the comprehensive nature of God's work. And God doesn't have to employ any uh, military secrecy here. There's no nighttime surprise attack. They'd be driven out at noon. They'd be driven out at particularly the time when the inhabitants of the Middle East wouldn't go out. They would find rest from the burning, fierce rays of the sun. But God would drive them out of their place of rest and security and burn them, as we've seen in that noonday heat. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Keratites. Uh, this is a name which is almost synonymous with the Philistines. They may be the original inhabitants of that land from whom some of the Philistines uh, descended. This is probably a synonymous parallel. You Keratites would be parallel to uh, speaking of the Philistines. In 5b, then, we see this parallel explicitly. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And then the capstone of it. I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And it's another parallel. It's repeating a summary idea of verse 4. Desolated, uh, deserted, driven out, uprooted. But then there's an abrupt change in tone. That's the punishment theme. You're going to be desolated, deserted, driven out, uprooted. But now the promise. And you, O seacoast, shall become pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for their Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Ashkelon is probably the centermost city on the coast of Philistia. It's the heart of their country. The heart of their country will now become Judah's dwelling place. How? God's going to intervene. Their land will become pasture land for the remnant. Now we see two themes here. One of them is the remnant. And then we see, of course, the remnant's inheritance. And the remnant is another significant idea in Zephaniah. It's that which creates the distinction between the faithful in Judah and the faithless in Judah. 
and we could put it in Pauline terms, uh, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. So who are the remnant in Zephaniah's conception? Well, simply in terms of chronology, it would be the surviving number who would come back from Babylon. But Zephaniah paints a more significant picture that points beyond the return from exile to a redeemed community who are seeking God. They're described for us in verse 3 of chapter 2. They are the ones who are humble, who do obey God's commands. The remnant is the ones who do seek righteousness and humility. There are those who respond positively to the prophet's admonition to seek Yahweh. A lot of worshipers in, in Judah sought the Lord and Baal, <laughs> sought Baal, sought, sought other false gods. The remnant seeks after Yahweh alone. You see, another description of the remnant that's given down in chapter 3 and verses 12 and 13, uh, God says, I will leave in your midst. It's a remnant idea. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. That remnant term uh, left in Israel, they're characterized as, as people who do no injustice. They speak no lies. They practice no deceit. They find their security in Yahweh, not in Baal, not in alliances with pagan nations. Now, the remnant are those who not only seek after Yahweh in worship, good, proper, true worship, but whose obedience demonstrates the authentic nature of that worship and their relationship with Yahweh. As Yahweh does no injustice, 3.5, the remnant will do no injustice. 2.13, these are the true people of God. And it's these are going to inherit the pasture land. And that's kind of the second main theme here in 2.6 and 7, uh, the pasture land. Back in Numbers 35, the Levites were to be given pasture land, and that pasture land was used for uh, the priests. We see another picture of that in Joshua 21. The pasture land of the cities was considered a place that was to be safe and, and, and secure. We see pictures of that throughout the Psalms, perhaps most notably Psalm 23, denoting peace and prosperity of the pasture land. Well, God is turning the coast, which is a land that is cut off by Israel, uh, cut off from Israel by force, and He's dwelling that into a, turning that into a dwelling place of peace. It's a picture of God's people coming to worship Him because they've been delivered. What is this? Oh, it's a creation. It's a, it's a reversal of the fall. In chapter 1, we see a reversal of the creation, right? God destroys man, beast, birds, and fish. Here he takes the coastland and he reverses the fall. He's going to make this into a pasture. It's a picture of judgment. God's going to take your city and turn it into flatland. But it's also a picture of redemption for the remnant. He's going to turn your city, your wicked place, into a place of rest and prosperity and safety. Now, God's not just restoring dirt. Right? He's restoring salvation. The pasture land of the remnant's a picture of redemption. It's a picture of God's people coming to Him in worship because they've been delivered. The pasture land is coupled together with worship. This land that's torn by violence and death and false worship now becomes a place of true worship, a place where lambs can graze in their own pasture. We see those themes come together, worship, pasture land, uh, and peace. Psalm 95, 6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep 
of his hand. There is no more peaceful place than in the presence of God. Isaiah 5, 7, speaking of the day of God's judgment, the lambs will graze is in their pa- in the day of God's judgment the lambs will graze in their pasture Ezekiel 34:11 through 14 I'll read this whole passage because it's just so marvelous God says behold I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. And that's all we can do not to deviate now from Zephaniah and go on to talk about Ezekiel uh, 34, because what a beautiful picture this of a pasture land that anticipates the need for a shepherd. And what's Ezekiel talking about? What's Zephaniah talking about? The work of Christ, the shepherd of the sheep. Who is it that seeks the sheep? Who is it that finds the remnant and leads them to their pasture land? It's Jesus, Luke 15, 4 through 6. It's Christ who says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture, John 10, 9. And so what is Zephaniah 2, 7? It's a prophecy. Not only of the return from the Babylonian captivity, the gathering of Judah, yeah, that's good, but a greater work, the chief shepherd, and it's Christ in Christ that the fortunes of Judah are going to be restored. And after Philistia, then we see a warning to Moab and Ammon in verses 8 through 11. The first thing, again, is the punishment clause, verses 8 and 9. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they've taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. Now, Moab and Ammon uh, lie on the southeast side of Judah. Uh, There is a long history there of animosity toward Israel. And there's a difference between this prophecy and the prophecy against the Philistines. Because here we see the reason for their punishment uh, is, is given. In the Philistines, the punishment's just pronounced. But here there are specifications given. Why? Verse 10, this shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts, because of their pride, because of lifting themselves up against God, as Satan did, they're going to be cast down. And it's interesting, I think, at least, that uh, this pride, uh, this reproach, this desire uh, to humiliate Israel is so interesting because it's Ammon and Moab who should have been ashamed. They're born of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. But as we saw back in 2.1, they're not ashamed. They're shameless. And Ammon in particular attacked Israel, attacked Israel both in terms of her cities and her seed. Amos records that uh, Ammon had ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. It was an attack of both genocide and geography. 
and it corresponds with the enmity that would exist between the God places there. This is God's doing for the benefit and the redemption of his people. God places the enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Ammon wants to snuff out the line of the Messiah. The people of God wants to take over her lands. And so Ammon says, war on God. In response, in verses 9 and 10, we see the only two uses of the term Lord of hosts, Yahweh Savot, the Lord of the army in Zephaniah. And that's a term, you know, that's associated obviously with military passages. God is the God of the armies fighting for the people of Israel. And in Zephaniah 2.11, the Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish, he will starve the gods of the earth. Israel was afraid of Ammon. We can be afraid of our enemies, right? But God says, rather than being afraid of Ammon, Ammon is going to be afraid of me. God will be awesome, fearful to them. And it suggests again here the day of the Lord. God's going to appear to them in judgment. But in the middle of this again, uh, there's promise. Verse 9, the remnant of my people shall plunder them. The survivors of my nation shall possess them. There's a dual way of speaking of this remnant. Again, is that uh, this is what is left of the people after they faced the captivity in Babylon. Survivors speaks of those who God has, whom God has preserved by His own grace. It's parallel uh, to the remnant, but it's emphasizing that this is my saving work. I will do this. And now God goes from the particular to the universal. And what Zephaniah tells us in the last part of verse 11 reminds us again of the fact that the the focus of this prophecy is far beyond the restoration in 586, far beyond the Babylonian captivity in 586 and the restoration in 539. It points toward the supremacy of the kingship of Jesus Christ. It's providing a parallel to a messianic psalm. It's showing us how the messianic king wouldn't be localized to Israel. He's not just in Judah. Zephaniah says in the last part of verse 11, To him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. In Psalm 72, 8-12, this is a song of, uh, of Solomon about the king of Israel. It begins, Give the king your justice, O God. And Solomon writes this, May the king have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. What Jeff and I is probably here drawing upon. May his enemies lick the dust. We've seen that theme. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The king was to be a type of Christ. The nations came to Solomon, didn't they? And they would bow down before him. And this is a picture of the nations bowing down to Christ. But what's taking place now in Judah? Well, the king of Judah is going to be taken captive. The king of Judah is the one who does obeisance. His people bow down to foreign kings. But Zephaniah is saying the right order is going to be restored. 11b. To him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. Now, does that happen in just the return from the exile? Well, no. This must point us to Jesus Christ. It can go nowhere else. 
And you're probably thinking in your minds right now already, Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's also a broadening of covenantal worship. Let me read that last part of verse 11 again. To him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. Now, under the Old Covenant, where is worship and sacrifice formally to be offered? Well, it's in Jerusalem. Here, it expands, but this time legitimately, each in his own place will bow down to the Lord. Here's the prophecy now of the spreading out of the gospel, the presence of God dwelling with His people, not in a localized temple, but in a broader dwelling in His church. This begins to see its fulfillment and its expansion with the coming of Jesus, and it expands in the work of Christ's church after Christ's resurrection. It's echoed in the latter ministry of of Christ, the words of the Great Commission. You'll be witnesses to me, where? Well, in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria to the ends of the earth. All the shores of the nations will see the light of His blessing. That's why... By the way, the remnant is to go into all the world and make disciples of the nations that they might know Christ and bow before them in humility, receive His salvation. And that promise of the nations bowing down and serving the Lord. What a glorious picture this is. And once again, what Zephaniah is doing is protological and pentateuchal anticipation. What happens before the fall? Adam is to take the image of God and he's to spread it all over the globe. This is the protological Great Commission. After the fall, what happens? Noah makes this prophecy that Japheth, the nations, would come to the tent of Shem, the Shemites, the Semites, the line of Christ. In the Abrahamic covenant, we learn that in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. From the prophets, we learn in Jeremiah chapter 3, Verse 17, at that time Israel shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall gather to it in the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And on and on and on, you know, we could go through the whole Bible uh, with this theme. But we'll have to leave it at, at this The people of Israel were to be concerned for the judgment of the nations, yes, but they're also to be concerned for the salvation of the nations. They were to be concerned to be a testimony to the nations. Not just think we're God's chosen people and God's going to come back and get them. They needed to know that salvation comes through repentance and it comes to Jew and Gentile. And the godly Jew was cognizant of this. Remember what Simeon sings in Luke chapter 2. What a beautiful picture this is. Boy, I'll tell you, if you ever held your own child in your arms, you you can't help but mist up when you think of, of, of what it must have been like for Simeon to hold the baby Jesus in his arms and say, my eyes have seen your salvation. And then he says in verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That was his hope. He 
instantly, correctly recognizes that Israel is to be a light to the nations and understands that light to be Jesus. The true Israel is here. And then where does Jesus go with the gospel? Not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles. Matthew 15, the feeding of the 4,000. They're probably Gentiles. They're east of the Sea of Galilee. What is Jesus doing? Delivering the bread of life to the Gentiles. He brings the water of life to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. What a glorious promise this is. Then we have a warning to the descendants of Cush. You also, verse 12, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Now we go south. So we had the Philistines to the west, Moab and Ammon, pretty much east, southeast a bit. And now Zephaniah is skipping over the Edomites in the south, even skips over the Egyptians, and he goes to the Cushites or the Ethiopians. Some versions will translate this as Ethiopians. The word is Cushim. Uh, Genesis chapter 10, 6 through 8, Cush is a son of Ham, the father of Nimrod. Bad guy. We'll read more about him a little bit later. But here's the emphasis. The emphasis on these Cushites below the Edomites, below the Egyptians, probably the emphasis here is on the fact that this is the southernmost kingdom the prophet knows. This is kind of like Columbus sailing, the furthest ends of the earth. And it underscores, once again, what's he doing? The comprehensive nature of God's judgment. This is a judgment that's going to go further than anybody can expect. And he names the furthest place he can think of. It's kind of like if a if an earth, big earthquake hits up here in Chicago, maybe you'd say, man, buildings as far as New Orleans were toppled, you know, and you're talking about as far as we could tell. The, the length of the devastation. But notice the brevity of this judgment. <clears throat> it's really quite uh, remarkable because it also reminds me of the brevity with which Jesus performs his miraculous works. Just a word, sometimes just a look. There's no exertion of power on his part, just a finger. And notice the brevity of this prophecy of judgment. One verse, there's no explanation. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. Now, we don't know why exactly, but the reason for their judgment is probably obvious to the people of Judah. Ezekiel 30 it gives us a pretty good clue. It indicates the reason for this judgment of Ethiopia was their support of Egypt when Egypt was attacking Israel. You can read more about that in Isaiah chapter 18. But here the brevity, I think, of verse 18 serves to highlight first the power of God. I don't even have to think about this. This doesn't take any effort on my part. But also the swiftness of God's judgment on them. Like a sudden burning anger we saw. Here's the swift sword of judgment is going to slay them. Zephaniah employs the sword imagery and how, how significant a picture this is throughout Scripture. It really looms large, and it's a picture that takes us from Genesis to Revelation. It features prominently, doesn't it, in the expulsion of Adam from the Garden of Eden. The cherubim who guarded the garden with a flaming sword. Who is originally charged with guarding the garden? Who's originally charged with guarding God's dwelling place? It's Adam. But he sins. So he's expelled from the garden. And now who guards the garden? That garden task is given to the cherubim. And he's standing there gardening the, guarding the sanctity of the garden from Adam with a sword. And Klein talks about this in God, Heaven, and Harmageddon and develops this a bit. God's not just destroying sin, 
by wielding the sword. What is he doing? He's vindicating his holiness and his glory. It can't be spoiled by man's sin. Death would fall upon anybody who attempts to access the tree of life through the sword of the angel. And that sword then becomes the battle cry of God who vindicates his holiness. Think of Gideon's uh, battle cry, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So the sword spoke of judgment. Why judgment of this nature? Why a sword? Because death is necessary in order for life to be obtained. And of course, that points to the death of Christ for his remnant, passing through death for his people. But outside of Christ, you bear the sword and fire in judgment to the ends of the earth. Zephaniah says the intention of that sword being depicted against that far people, the Cushim. So the Cushites would be judged by the sword. But what else does the sword do? It brings deliverance for God's people. Again, we see this theme of judgment and deliverance. Matthew 10, 34, Christ tells his disciples, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. I came to bring the sword of judgment against all of those who would attempt to find life outside of him. What does he mean by that? The same thing he means in Luke chapter 12 when he says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Jesus is connecting the fact that he will come again to complete his work with the fact that he's already begun his work in judgment. This, again, is the arrival of God. Jesus is connecting his first and second comings. He comes to begin his work of judging. Even in his earthly ministry, he's wielding the sword of judgment against Satan. You see it in the wilderness temptation. He goes to battle immediately, and he guards and protects his kingdom in the way that Adam should have, but he doesn't. And Christ does what with Satan in the wilderness? He defeats him. He overcomes the tempter. Adam fails to overcome in paradise. Jesus does it in the wilderness. And in the consummation, Revelation 1, 16 and 2, 20 and 16, 19, 15 and 21, the two-edged sword comes again to strike the nations. That's where we see it then happen, what Zephaniah prophesies here, until every knee bows to him and every tongue confesses Jesus as Lord. And so now we've been to the west, We've been to the east, we've been to the south, now it's time to go to the north as we look at the warning to Assyria in verse 13 through 15. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Once again, we see this phrase uh, that we saw back in 1.4, God's going to stretch out his hand, he's going to work powerfully in judgment exactly when it is time and in the precision in the way of his justice, Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the most powerful city in Assyria, becomes desolation, wasteland. Look at the description of it in verse 14. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. And what do we find? Another reversal of the created order. That's what this judgment on Assyria is. Originally, 
Adam and his posterity were to do what to creation? They were to subjugate it. They were to use it for God's glory. What are we seeing a picture of here? Creation has seized power. It has taken control of up to that time what was the most powerful empire in the world and translates it back into a wilderness. Robertson puts it this way, chaos has supplanted civilization. Indeed, in Genesis 3, uh, 17 through 19, one of the consequences of the fall is the curse upon the created order. It, rece- it seeks to, to reclaim its dominance over humanity. Interestingly, too, the animals that are mentioned here in verse 14 are ceremonially unclean animals. This is insult upon injury. We see them mentioned in Leviticus 11, 18, Deuteronomy 14, 17. This, this is a picture of the defiling of Nineveh. You could perhaps think back to how Rachel is ceremonially unclean as she sits on the pagan gods of her father. (laughs) She's demonstrating their worthlessness. This once powerful city has become worthless and unclean animals are roosting in Nineveh. The pelican is found in the list of unclean birds in Deuteronomy 18. The word translated owl, uh, derived from a Hebrew word which means to throw up. Uh, and it speaks of the way that the owl would feed its young, it would regurgitate its, its food. Uh, unclean. The word hedgehog, probably, it's a bit of a guess, really. Um, some think that it, it might have been a swamp bird that would perch on columns, think empty columns where a city once stood, the call of the bittern, the New King James translates to the bittern, uh, is one writer described it as dismally hollow, the, uh, the interrupted bellowing of a bull, but hollower and louder. This is a city that echoes with abandon, appropriate cry coming out of a once great civilization, the mighty empire of Assyria has become a deserted shell. And the irony of this, I think, is noted in verse 15, where once Assyria dwelled securely, animals dwell securely. Assyria was secure by her own strength, by her own power. And now the animals are secure within the walls of Assyria. Her fortresses, her walls have crumbled. Great temples once stood, awing the passers-by. Birds and beasts now poke their head out from among the ruins. Birds who used to sing in the nearby nearby forests are now singing in, in windowsills. Animals who used to roam the fields around Assyria make their home in the houses of Assyria. One of the principal leisure activities of Assyrian royalty was hunting. Well, they've been hunted. God has hunted them, and the beasts dominate. The costly, the the ornate, the skillfully, the gorgeous, beautiful uh, uh, carved cedar wood has become a home for insects, rotting, wind, rain, sun. It's deserted. Why such judgment? Their pride and a denial of the creator-creature distinction. Trying to dethrone God from the first commandment and putting self on the throne. Look at verse 15. I am and there is no one else. In the Hebrew, it's stark. It's simply the first person singular pronoun for I. It reads like this. I and there is nobody. 
putting myself in place of God. It's God who says, I am. It's God who declares his self-sufficiency. But for their claims of self-sufficiency, Assyria is taken out. Nineveh, the prince of paganism, has connections with another city, the city of Babel. Nineveh is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 11. It's a city built by the notorious Nimrod, who also had built Babel. Nimrod was the grandson of Noah's son Ham. His father had named him, let us rebel. I would advise against naming your children, let us rebel. But he intentionally planned that Nimrod would not submit to God. But he would become a leader and a motivator of the rebellious. And he does. But God's plan can't be thwarted. And so God plans a new nation, a new creation. He prepares Abraham, calls him out of paganism, Mesopotamia, by his own word, a descendant of Shem to be the father of a chosen people, the father of the remnant city who receives hope in the prophecy of the destruction of Nimrod in Zephaniah. And in August of 612, the city of Nineveh is destroyed by a combined army of Babylonians and Medes and a tribal confederation. For the next 300 years, the site lay vacant, a stark reminder of the veracity of Zephaniah's prophecy. The builder of Babel and Nineveh is leveled. God judges the pagan nations. And this judgment is a picture of the human culture that is unable to provide salvation and unable ultimately to sustain itself. And Zephaniah is pointing us forward to the destruction of the city of man and the triumph of the city of God. And in this 12-verse section here that depicts the universal judgment of nations, verse 11 stands out as central. The Lord will be awesome against them. For he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. We talked a little bit earlier about the chiastic structure in one of the verses. Some see Zephaniah itself as a book arranged in a chiastic structure. There is, as you've noticed, a lot of repetition. But then they see verse 11 then as the center of the book. Part 1 we could say generally judgment on Judah. Part two, judgment on the Gentile nations. Part three, eschatological hope. And two, we have the middle, the key theme, the bowing down of the nations. This is a picture of the innumerable company of Revelation 7, 9, and 10. The great multitude without number, people from every tongue, tribe, language, nation, standing before the throne and the Lamb, crying out salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the governments of humanity will lift up their arm in rebellion against God. But there's only one true nation, one city of his construction. As Klein has put it uh, frequently, I think human governments are substitutes. Temporary in nature, they serve only until the permanent consummation culture of the community of a glorified humanity. God's wrath against humanity and sin is depicted in Zephaniah as a judgment that is directed against human political structures that have failed. And the common order arrangement of that secular state will disappear and give way in that final day to the kingdom of Christ, which will set back in order the perversion of the created order by the ushering in of a new creation, a 
new creation that won't have room for the rebellious, but for the kingdom of God alone. All right, that's uh, lesson six.